Pedagogy a go go. Pedagogy go go go. Hello and welcome to Pedagogy a go go, a podcast about college faculty sharing what happens in their classrooms and why. This is episode three, the evolution of an educator, and we are your hosts, Gina Turner and Tom O'Connor. Hey, Gina, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I am punchy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, me it is. Too. We should do. Oh, dear listener, you should know we are recording this on the final day of finals here at NCC. Yes, and indeed. while you are listening to this a week or so from now and breathing the the deep sighing breaths of the free we will be your zombie host today as i have for some reason decided to give up caffeine and i'm trying to trudge through no it's not it's not trudging we're we're just this is the heavy lift this is the moment where we we have to be superheroes and we're we are nearly there when you said earlier that you were giving up caffeine, I thought you were actually joking. You really have given up caffeine this oh, week? Oh, Gina, what was I thinking? Wow. <laughs> so, Whereas I've just become like, I'm mainlining caffeine <laughs> this week. So, and I'm not usually a big I, caffeine person. It's self-punishment or self-sabotage. It's oh, one or the other. I wish you much luck, my friend. <laughs> so this this will be my restorative session. Our, our meeting today and the chance to get to do this because I desperately look forward to it. Yes. And uh, to to talk shop, to talk teaching. Yes. Um, and so it, it's, it's been a few weeks since we've got a chance to do this. And uh, we like to begin by talking about something that we learned or something that surprised us. Was there was there anything that kind of popped in your life that uh, a moment you had that you want to share? Well, I tell you, you know, we you talked about being punchy. I, t- I agreed that I'm also punchy, not only because it's finals week, but because my husband and I just uh, adopted a puppy <laughs> and I am running on very little sleep. <laughs> the cute. The, cue the audience to go oh, oh yeah. as we think of puppies. It's a really cute puppy. Let me just tell you all. It's true. Um, I've seen pictures. <laughs> but um, we and we were talking a little bit about it before we started recording today, and jokingly, <laughs> and of course because I'm so tired, I don't remember who said it. Um, either you or Kelly or Jeff mentioned um, how much I am learning about conditioning, right? And of course, mm-hmm. as a psychology professor. I have to teach conditioning every semester, and I have been so excited that when I got a dog, someday I'm going to bring that dog in, and I'm going to have that dog demonstrate the um, the power of operant conditioning because my dog is super smart, really, really smart, and he has learned very quickly with using um, positive reinforcement. We try and stay away from punishment. Um, and, uh, and so it's nice to see my field in action. (laughs) You were just rubbing your training prowess in my nose. I have three ill-behaved mutts at home. We have, you know, the the lab is the alpha. She tells me what to do and how much dinner to cook for her. So I am desperately envious of your psychological abilities. Well, and I also have to give credit completely where credit is due to my husband, who of course is a professional coach. So really, he is the bigger expert at using the principles of conditioning than I am. And uh, he is really, he's doing the lion's share of the training. You're going to have one of those dogs I love to hate who's just perfectly (laughs) behaved at the party, does what it's told. Famous last words, right? You know, (laughs) ask me, ask me again in a few months and hopefully I'm still singing this dog's praises. (laughs) How about you? What did you learn this week? You know, I had, um, I had a moment in the car. Uh, and so, like, it was basically, 
I think of it as an object lesson in the pleasures of being wrong. So I see myself <laughs> as a music snob and I was driving to work and I listened to WXPN shout out. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, and yeah. So this song came on the radio and I'm like, that's a new Peter Gabriel song. Oh, yes. I see. And so like, and I was listening to it. I'm like, this is great. It wasn't yeah. just a good Peter Gabriel song. It was like classic era Peter Gabriel um, from like, you know, his second or third album, <laughs> like post Salisbury Hill, but pre, you know, older Peter Gabriel. And uh, I was really excited. And so like I was operating on this assumption of my knowledge that I knew that there was a this had to be a Peter Gabriel song, you know, on the radio. So I, I got home and I started Googling new Peter Gabriel, like, um, and, you know, <laughs> songs. Sure enough, album pops up, uh, rated PG. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, he did put out a new album. And uh, I bought the album. I'm listening to the entire album. It's a pretty good album. There's a really great, great cover of a Magnetic Field song. Oh, but the wow. song I heard... Not on the album. Yeah. And so, like, I had to be like, how did I miss this? Was it from a soundtrack from a TV show? I'm Googling, I'm Googling. And finally, I had to question kind of my foundational assumptions, right, <laughs> and go back to the source. So I went to WXPN. I found a guest at the time I was driving, mm-hmm. went through the playlist. It wasn't Peter Gabriel. Yeah. It was a Bruce Hornsby song, of wow. all people, uh, that was produced by Bonnie Vare. And wow. it just happened, right? And it just happened to sound exactly like... Peter Gabriel. And so I went out and bought a new Bruce Hornsby album. Wow, turned out now to be, I'm dying to hear it. It's, it's fabulous. So huh. it's, it's, it's called Cast Off. Okay. And so I guess the thing I learned was that like, ultimately I was wrong, <laughs> but I got two great new albums out of it and a new profound respect for Bonnie Vera as a producer. And I guess I kind of wanted to transpose that into how I approach teaching mm-hmm. and what we do when our students are wrong, right? Mm-hmm. How can we take that moment of being wrong and make it an area for uh, productivity mm-hmm. um, and for potential and, and discovery? And that, you know, the journey that once you find out, oh, this isn't what I thought it was, I made some initial assumptions, let me begin to dig in further and ask some some questions, yep. I think can produce more than, you know, than it just might otherwise. Absolutely. And when we're wrong, you know, if I'm wrong in the classroom. And I'm wrong frequently. <laughs> but it is, it's such a great opportunity to model for the students how being wrong actually gives you this beautiful fork in the road where you can go off and explore a whole new territory that you wouldn't have explored had you stayed on the right path. That's so, yeah. So I think everybody needs to be wrong well, everybody needs to recognize that being wrong can actually be a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. Excellent. So I, I gave you some homework. You did. So, and I, I, you know, some extra credit, if you will. Yes. And, and I asked you, if I recall correctly, to find a student story and, and, and bring it back today. So yeah. I was wondering, did you, did you find a student story that you want to bring back and share today? Yeah. You know, my problem was there were too many stories, right? Because then it was hard to decide, well, which story would I want to tell? And, and also, you know, some of the stories are very poignant. And, you know, of course, that's, a, that's an important reason why that extra credit was good for me because it reminds me that we're really holding a lot of these students' stories and their lives in our hands as as instructors a lot of times. They will share things with us, um, either stopping after class or maybe they'll raise their hand and share it during class. I teach online as well, and so a lot of the work that they do online for me Um, I'm asking them to take their own experiences and apply it to the material. And they'll share really personal stories and really powerful stories and and sad stories sometimes. So um, I 
I recognize that I want to be really mindful and, you know, uh, respect their privacy and um, kind of respect the um, the space in which it the student felt comfortable to share those stories. So then I started to think, and maybe this is a little narcissistic, but I thought about um, an experience that I had with students where I shared my story because they shared their stories. And in a nutshell, I won't go into the whole thing, but I went uh, for the first time on an overnight trip with students this spring break, and it was fantastic. Um, And we had a great time, and I was really nervous because I am at heart a strong introvert. And uh, I'm not a I'm not a social butterfly at all, and I was nervous about oh how am I going to bond with the students and how am I going to interact with them when it's not this structured teacher student. Um, but they shared so much and with each other and with me, and we had fun and we laughed and um, you know there were moments where again they shared things that were really personal. So our our last day back when we had our kind of you know debriefing of the trip. Um, we went around the room and everyone shared their, you know, experience that they really took with them. Well, I fell really hard on my tailbone on this trip. Oh, no. Yeah. A coccyx accident. A That's coccyx, terrible. A, the dreaded coccyx accident. <laughs> um, and, uh, and it hurt. <laughs> but it happened in front of all of them. Speaking of being wrong, doing something wrong and silly. I literally, my feet slid out from under me and I went, bam, right on my tailbone. Oh, no. And I popped back up, but then I couldn't sit for well, basically for a month. Uh, But I said to them, you know, it was a wonderful trip, but one of the things that really is sticking with me is I'm really glad I fell on my ass in front of all of you (laughs) because it's a human thing to do. It too, and we, it was funny and it was a little embarrassing, but it kind of became a running thing and people checked up on me to see if I was feeling okay. And I just kind of felt like it was a bonding experience. And it reminds you that it's our flaws and our cracks and our missteps that can really bring us together as, uh, as people. I so. totally agree. I feel like that's almost becoming a repeating theme. This is our, our third time doing this podcast and, and time and again, this notion of allowing ourselves to be vulnerable as mm-hmm. instructors can open the door to connections with students that we wouldn't otherwise have. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to bring a story as well. Um, and it's less, I guess, about a student. You know, it's the end of the semester. And so oftentimes there's, there's a lot of triage going along, a lot of things that are on fire. And we're trying to make sure everyone – we're trying to get everyone across the finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it can be a time when it can, it can hard to, be, to, be, to stay positive. Yeah. And – and sure enough, something happened and it was so overwhelmingly positive. The system simply worked. Mm. I don't know how else to say this, okay. but, um, you know, one of our English faculty here at the Bethlehem campus approached me and she had a student in her College Success 150. So for those of you not at NCC, this is the Skills for Academic Success class. It's a three credit class and it's really res- reserved for students who come in and have developmental needs in both English, reading and math. Mm-hmm. And so this was a student that she'd become close with and she'd gotten to know the student's story. And the student had this really tragic story. Um, she'd suffered great loss in the last year, losing um, a close family member and a fiance, mm-hmm. and was also struggling with these really terrible health issues that had, you know, she went to the hospital several times and she started missing a lot of class. Mm-hmm. And it reached the point of what are we going to do, uh, where she was going to be withdrawn from an intro to speech communication class. And there was also this question, she was in an ACLS, so a six credit developmental reading and writing class. Mm-hmm. 
And this teacher said, will you meet with her? Because she was taking these classes. She was taking the college success at the Bethlehem campus, but the remainder of her classes were all at my campus, the Monroe campus. Mm -hmm. She said, could you reach out to other instructors? Can we build a network of support for the student? So I met with the student. I talked to her other instructors. I worked with two people, um, a a counselor, and then our associate dean, Belinda Austin. And and everyone kind of came together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as it happened, she did end up having to withdraw from one of her classes but she didn't lose the whole semester and she knew that she was probably carrying more than she could Mm -hmm. so all the right conversations happened to say you know if you know and this is a really important thing because she truly felt like a failure even for the one class right Mm -hmm. and and i i had her in my office and and i said you know you are not a failure it's the most adult thing in the world to recognize that life has thrown a great deal at me and i have all these people trying to help me be supportive and there's still so much i can do this semester and i'm going to come out and she persisted and i was getting text messages from the professors saying she just got a hundred on her final portfolio and it was just like Oh, this yeah. is great. This is why we do this. Yeah. And, you know, and it's only frustrating to the degree that we know that the system doesn't always work. Yeah. But highlighting those moments when it really does yeah. and when those connections can be made and we can actually save a student, it's the most beautiful thing in the world. That's terrific. So, that is terrific. I, I love that what you said. It's that network, that system that served as a safety net to to allow her to finish out strong and in the best way possible for her. So, so yeah, yeah, a shout out to all those professors who, who really helped. Yeah, yeah, it's great. I, I, I love the reminder that we really are a community in Northampton. Absolutely. For sure. Well, speaking of like great and supportive professors, um, our guest today, Charlie Reinheimer, he's been, he's been here at NCC 25 years, and I'm so excited to, to have the opportunity to speak to him today. Um, he's someone I've known in, in a limited capacity, so... Dear audience, I'm going to be sitting next to you, you know, finally having a chance to really sit down and have a meaty conversation with Charlie about his teaching because I've heard about him from so many students, current and former. Uh, I know that he's changing student lives, that he's deeply committed to the work here at NCC. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I anticipate a great conversation with Charlie. Today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, he probably won't, but I, I wish he would bring his dogs with him. <laughs> so no dogs have arrived on set yet. So can someone make a phone call and get Charlie's dog? dogs here (laughs) if you had just one word to describe yourself as a teacher what would it be (laughs) right so today it is our pleasure to be talking to dr charles reinheimer professor of biological science and an instructor in the veterinary technician program at northampton community college Um, Charlie has been full-time for over 25 years at NCC, and he's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania Veterinary uh, Medical School and a practicing veterinarian. He was this year's chair of our college's annual humanities series, which I'm hoping we'll get a little bit more of a chance to talk to you about um, as we uh, get into our conversation. Um, And also another thing I'm hoping we're going to get a chance to talk to you about, um, in 2016, you had heard a a, a broadcast on NPR talking about um, a project which ultimately became the Seeds for the Refugee Resettlement Program here at NCC. So thank you so much for joining us and welcome, Charlie. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. (laughs) So so do you want to start with uh, the first question, Tom? Yeah, we're going to begin broad. Charlie. What do you teach here at NCC, and why do you teach it? I teach uh, Biology 2, which is a survey, botany, and zoology course. Um, I teach Human Biology, which is a human anatomy and physiology course. 
uh, and I teach veterinary anatomy and physiology, which is a course for the vet tech program. And what, what drew you to those? Um, actually, um, my story is I was a practicing veterinarian, was a partner in a, in a pretty large practice in a place called Ackermanville, and I did both large and small animal veterinary work. My specialty was dairy. Mm. And um, after about 10 years, I started to feel like all I was doing was being a veterinarian. So I came to Northampton and took a night class, which was an honor section of history of the Caribbean, oh, taught by three different professors. Oh, cool. And I fell in love with the course and fell in love with the place. And uh, one of the professors, Carmen Candell, took me to the assistant dean and said, you know what, this guy could teach. I think you should give him a section. <laughs> so I came and I taught two night sections of anatomy and physiology and fell in love with my students. And six months later, I sold my practice and came here. Wow. No kidding. <laughs> so you're, but you're still a practicing vet. I only practice one day a week. Okay. And I still one night a week. Okay. And That's... I just do small animals now. No, I just want to not dairy anymore. <laughs> I still have the one beef herd that I work on. <laughs> That's great. So it was completely sort of uh, serendipitous. You just thought, hey, I want to do something fun, take a class. And the, the teacher saw something in you that made her think that you would be a good teacher. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Well, that brings us to our next question we always ask um, on, on our little podcast here, which is, and maybe this would be a word that she would have used to describe yourself, you as a teacher, something she saw in you. But is there one word that you could use to describe yourself as a teacher? <laughs> Journeyman. Ooh. Ooh, can you say more about that? Well, I feel like even though it's been 28 years, I'm still working on it and I'm not getting it right. <laughs> So it's like it's like it's like tuning in a radio and you get just right up to the right frequency um, and then they change the frequency on you and you're starting over again. Oh um, yeah. And that's how it is over the years. The students are constantly changing, so yeah. you've got to be changing. And so you think you've just about got this right and then it's not. That's such a perfect analogy too, because you're in the car and you're on the road and so then the scenery's changing, everything is changing around you, even as you're still trying to dial into where you were before last semester. Yeah, that's great. Can you identify one way that you think that you see yourself as having changed as an instructor on your journey? Yeah, um, I think I'm a lot more sensitive now to the students that are in my classroom because they're becoming so much more diverse that I feel like I have to react to that diversity more. And so I think I have to be more attuned to different learning styles, different backgrounds, those type things. I think 28 years ago, the classes were much more homogenous, mm. so it wasn't quite as important to have to do that. But now you do. And so I think that's been the biggest change. And a change for the better. I was just going to say, has that diversity, how has that diversity enriched oh, the classroom? Wonderful. It's wonderful. I mean, to be able to tap into those things, to have a, a student in my last class when we're talking about reptiles tell me that when she grew up in Sri Lanka, when they came home from school, their mother went out in the backyard and combed for cobras before the kids were allowed to go. Oh, wow. Home. And so, you know, to get that kind of stories in your classroom is remarkable. I mean, yeah. that's what makes it interesting. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because you said that you started to feel like all you were doing was being a veterinarian. And um, I had a lot of fun Googling through our website um, and just kind of re refreshing my memory on all of the things that you do because you're a farmer, you keep bees, you are a nature traveler and photographer and took a trip to Africa. Was that last summer? No, three summers ago. Three I mean, summers Africa ago. twice. Okay. All right. Do you think that 
part of this, this, you know, broadening out from just, you know, quote unquote, just being a veterinarian has been in conjunction with experiencing these different students over the years and this diversity of students. Is that question making sense? Yeah, it makes okay. perfect sense. Um, I think that's true. I think it really is true. Um, not to get personal, but the other part of that was um, my wife had progressive MS for 22 mm-hmm. years. Mm-hmm. And so I was her caretaker for all of that period. Um, and so I didn't go on a vacation or do anything in that branched out range for um, that for at least 10 years. And sure. so those things like beekeeping and pottery making and wood turning and those type of things were things that I could do on my farm to keep myself busy okay. without having to leave. Okay. But when she passed away eight years ago, the blanket was off. And so there's been a major trip ever since. Oh, wow. But bringing that, I think, back helps me with the diversity of my students. Yeah. You know, when they're talking about the Caribbean, I can say, well, when I was in Ecuador, when I was in um, St. Thomas, when I was in, and so, you know, I think that, that helps you relate to them. Yeah. A lot. Yeah, I think so. The other thing you said, and I'm, and I'm very sorry, you know, to hear about the loss of your wife, but um, the other thing you said is even when you were more tied to home, you were still exploring, you were still finding Mm -hmm. different outlets and, and different things to, um, to spark your interest and, and new things to be a journeyman in to a certain extent. Do you feel like that also helps you? The fact that you're always learning helps you to relate to your students. Yes. And I think that whenever you pick up a new hobby or, for example, there's a whole series of vocabulary that goes along with that hobby that you didn't know before. Oh, yeah. And so when I'm talking to my students, I'm like, you know, okay, if you're going to be a, a doctor, or I mean, if you're going to be a doctor, or if you're going to be a nurse, or if you're going to be even a, you know, a, a radiologist, there's a series of terms that you're going to have to learn. It's a mm-hmm. whole new vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And so regardless of what you do, you've got to expand yourself and learn that vocabulary. Mm-hmm. And I even tell my human biology students, I say, you know, you're going to learn about things like um, different parts of the body and those. The next time you go to a doctor, use those mm-hmm. and see how different the reaction is. All of a sudden they're taking you a lot more seriously. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that's an expansion that, that students do. And whenever you try something new, you, you, you learn that whole new vocabulary. That's a, that, I love that point because it's something that I find myself saying to my students because the, the terminology in psychology can be so dry. And oftentimes it's these sort of words that we use more generally in regular conversation, but that have these really specific meanings in psychology, like attachment. And I, and I say, you know, it's just important for us to have the same vocabulary so that we know what we are talking to each other about, right? So, and, and to your point, right? And so that when you go to the doctor, the doctor knows, oh, I can actually go maybe a little more deeply into this because you seem to understand this terminology. And it's nice to remember too how uncomfortable it is when you're learning that new vocabulary. You know, I, and I always use the when you know I thought I knew what being an English major was about. You know, after graduating with my bachelor's, and when I went to graduate school, there was a whole new lexicon that mm-hmm. I had to lose. You know, words I'd never seen in a different way of speaking. And that first year was tough. And it was you know faculty members you know at Lehigh came to me and said, you know what, it's going to be really hard. Mm-hmm. But you you grow as a person as you're learning, and you you find new ways into that discourse. Yeah. Charlie, you know, it's funny. I was so excited to sit down and talk with you today because I don't get to see you often because my role primarily keeps me at the Monroe campus. But we've connected a bunch of times in the past because um, one thing I think 
that is unusual about your role here is that you have some administrative components that when I'm calling you, so you staff a lot of the biology classes uh, and chemistry classes, if I'm, if I'm right, right, you know, here at, here at the Bethlehem campus, uh, just as I'm in charge of staffing them at the Monroe campus. And uh, so you've helped me out about a gazillion times. Well, I call you, please, please, I have a huge need. You know, <laughs> do you have anybody that's willing to come up to Monroe? Um, but I'm really curious because uh, as a primarily administrator who also teaches, um, it's interesting to have a foot in both of those worlds because they operate very differently. And I'm wondering if your administrative role um, affects the way you teach and, and vice versa. Um, I'm not sure about that. When when I came here, uh, like I said, when I sold my practice, I came here as an adjunct. And so I, I had, you know, no solid grounding here. Mm-hmm. And I was an adjunct for about six years, or five years. And the dean came to me and said, we're not going to have a full-time biology position available for at least three more years. Mm. How about you be my assistant? And when that position comes up, then I'll try to put a good word in for you. Uh-huh. So I was the assistant dean for three years. Essentially the role I fill now, yep. Right. And so that gave me the administrative chops. And I, I don't think that helps me in my teaching, but I think it helps me as department head in dealing with the administration for my faculty mm-hmm. because I understand where both sides are coming from. <laughs> yep. And so it, it kind of gives me a different perspective, I think, in that respect. One changes the experience for, for other teachers here. No, you know. Yeah. As far as as far as the classroom, no, I don't know if it really I guess I was thinking in terms of, and uh, maybe, you know, in my role as assistant dean, I have a lot of students that come to me seeking support and things like that. So it does reframe, I think, sometimes for me in the classroom, kind of hearing those students' sides in a way that we don't always hear in the classroom. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So and, their, and their complaints. Yes, very much so. <laughs> this is actually a really hard time of year because we, as we get to the yeah. end of the semester, you know, I have to remind myself that I'm only seeing a narrow view of our students because everyone's coming in with issues that they've had as grades are about to come due and anxieties rise and it seems like every 10 minutes there's another issue coming up to the surface right and it's that's just my unfortunately they don't come to my door when they've had a wonderful experience with a professor (laughs) to knock and be like hey mr assistant dean i want to tell you how great my i mean sometimes they do and i absolutely love that that's good (laughs) that's good at least a couple of the times they're coming to see you it's for good reasons Um, well, talking about the administrative stuff and, and, uh, sort of having to coordinate faculty, biology faculty, um, kind of brings me to ask you about coordinating the, um, the NEH grant. And just to sort of clarify for anyone listening to this who isn't familiar with, um, NCC, um, we have a yearly funded, um, grant that is, is, funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities um, that allows for a faculty person or persons to create programming on a, to- on a topic for the year. Does that kind of yep. cover it? And, um, and so what was that like? Um, your topic was um, humanity's best friend, dogs and the human saga. And I have to say, I went to as many of the sessions as, as possible, especially if there was going to be a dog there. And, and they were, they were fantastic, culminating, of course, in our special guest, uh, Dr. Temple Grandin. So what was that whole was process? A, it was an incredible year. It was just, it was great. And it, and it is interesting because it started as simply a mind exercise. Um, um, Dr. Bugagas sent out the request for, topics for the NEH grant, I immediately thought, well, I'm a science guy, so I'm not doing that. <laughs> and then I thought, well, if I was going to do it, what would I do? Yeah. And so I just thought, well, what could we incorporate that would bring as much of the campus as possible together? And it was something that a lot of people seemed to react to. And then I just thought about my my practice and, 
and my own dogs and how I interact with them and how other people interact and how people are always telling me dog stories. And so, you know, it, it seemed to be a good fit for that. Yeah. And, and as the semester went on, it just seemed to snowball. People yeah. just kept coming and saying, you know, when's the next event? You know, <laughs> are there going to be dogs there? You know, and, so, and then when Elizabeth was able to get uh, Dr. Grand, and that was just the icing on the cake. Yeah. So it, was, it was a great year. I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss the year. Yeah. Yeah. That's was, great. Yeah. It was fun. And and Dr. Grandin, and again, I guess just a tiny bit of background for anyone listening to this who isn't familiar with her. She is a, an animal um, behavior expert. Um, she also has autism and is a very vocal, uh, I guess, advocate for people who have autism. Um, and then we were talking before the podcast thinking, if we're talking about autism, we should probably put a definition on the table. And so the one that we sort of crafted along with Jeff, um, is autism is a, is a disorder, um, that primarily focuses on social, um, uh, social and communication deficits. Some, it can involve some cognitive deficits. Um, and oftentimes the behaviors are really restricted and really repetitive and really focused. And um, that was something that Dr. Grandin really focused on in terms of how can a person who has autism succeed in the world. Um, and I also loved how straightforward she was. And you were in in the session where we had the Q&A with her as well. Did you find interacting with her to, to give you an insight it into... Was, it was incredible. From yeah. the very beginning, when we were in the car taking her from the hotel, her thoughts are very concrete. Uh -huh. She doesn't accept long questions or conversations. She yeah. wants everything done very, very succinctly and, and very concretely. Yeah. And you can expect that the story she told you, you're going to hear again two or three times during the course of the day. Okay. Because it just, it's something that's in her head and she just keeps bringing it up over and over in different situations. And okay. so it's, it's an, it's a very interesting experience. It's yeah. a very rewarding experience, but it, it's different. Yeah. And I, and I mentioned to Dr. Gugagas, who was the sort of the head of this thing, you know, I said, well, you know, how did this compare to the speakers beforehand? And she said, totally different. Oh, this yeah. was a totally different situation. Yeah. And, and, and very surprising. Um, she told us that, you know, she really doesn't like big crowds and she likes to keep things as structured as possible. She needs a couple breaks during the day. She didn't want to do a big book signing because she didn't want to feel overwhelmed mm. by all that. Mm -hmm. And then she said, when the, when the presentation's over, I'd like to just leave. You know? Oh, wow. So we put up screens. We put up, um, uh, we got the car out back. And so when the, when it's over, I walked her down towards the door. She looked over and saw the crowd in the theater lobby, made a left, and spent almost three hours with the crowd. Oh, wow. Is that right? Wow. So, so selfies, talked to people, shook hands. And we were standing there like... <laughs> and I said to Elizabeth, you know, well, should we do anything here? And she said, she's got this. So we just stuck around. Do you think that she, because you um, were so respectful... Uh, of her request that she maybe was able to kind of settle in and, and start to enjoy that because you took all of anything that was uncomfortable out of it. I think her. that was positive. I think that was part of it. The other thing I think was part of it was from the moment she walked into the um, gym, mm -hmm. people responding to her. Yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, they clapped for her when she walked across to go to the state. And so <laughs> I think she kind of felt the, the warmth that was in that room. Yeah. And I think it made her feel more comfortable. Yeah. Because, I, I happened to be standing next to a gentleman there and I said, 
I'm not really sure what to do here. And he said, well, I can't really hit help you out. Thought, well, why would you say that? And he was her handler. Oh. He takes her places. No, he oh. said, this, this rarely happens. He said, she's usually out of there and back at the hotel. Oh, that's so fantastic. It was, Thank yeah. you for creating an environment where she could feel that way. I yeah. think you played a huge role in that. No, I think it was mostly our our people yeah the NCC community well one of the things I loved about her and I was lucky enough to be able to ask her two questions during the Q&A and I love how completely comfortable she is in knowing herself right. and knowing her different you know her her neuro atypicality really and so not only knowing it and feeling completely comfortable telling people what she needs but I think that also allows her to speak for um other people who might not be able to speak up for right. those kinds of needs and and her emphasis on recognizing that people think very differently and the, and she kept say, she said that a number of times the first thing you have to be aware of is that different people have different minds and i thought that was so powerful yep and her whole comment about different but not less yeah yes. well she and she's very clear about that that she doesn't see autism as a disorder per right. se uh which i think makes much of her writing very powerful um, one question I did have, though, is you were talking about um, her request about cordoning off and asking that she not have certain interactions. Essentially, what she gave you was the list of accommodations exactly. that she was requesting, mm -hmm. just as we have accommodations for our students. And one thing that struck me during Temple Grandin's visit was I was left with the question, um, are we doing everything we can here at NCC to support our students with autism who are on the spectrum? Um, after that talk. I went back to my classes and I just sat there and watched the students interact. Mm. And I thought, that one's probably a little bit on the spectrum. That mm. one's probably a little bit on the spectrum. That was definitely mm. on the spectrum. <laughs> and so as she was saying, there's so many people that are on the quote unquote spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, I think we have to recognize that first and then maybe be a little more patient or gear our, our, our teaching a little bit more to those students. Yep. I mean, maybe the student that asked the annoying questions over and over and over again <laughs> yeah. is part of that population. And so instead of seeing them as something that's annoying, we should see them as someone that has a challenge that we have to try to help out. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah. Well, just I think supporting some of my students who have been on the spectrum has actually improved the classroom experience for other students in the class for things that were really important to, to them and that mm -hmm. they clearly communicated to me as simple as updating a syllabus if you missed a class for a snow date so that they knew exactly when things exactly. fell. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and because I wanted to be considered and said, sure, I'll get it up on Blackboard. Let me do that. And yet all of the students benefited from mm -hmm. that, asking clarifying questions on an assignment. Mm -hmm. um, so in choosing to see them in the classroom as, as a potential strength. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. And I think um, because we do know that we're seeing more diagnoses of autism, and of course, the diagnosis changed in recent years. And I feel like she started to touch on that, too, that Asperger's was taken sort of taken away as a as an official diagnosis. And that has been a, some cause for controversy in that um, in that community in in the um, autism community, too. But I think just and so I guess sort of speaking as a non-clinician, right? So I'm not, and I'm not saying you were diagnosing anyone in the classroom, but just recognizing again that we all have these, um, you could call them symptoms if they start to stand in your way, but that anything that we diagnose as a disorder is really just elements of human traits and personality and, and behaviors that 
can sometimes cause the person a challenge if they're not flexible or if it becomes too extreme, but that we all have them. You know, when we talk about disorders in in my intro psych class, I say, we've all hallucinated. You know, who hasn't walked down the street and turned because you thought you heard someone say your name, right? It just means that you're perceiving something that isn't based on a real thing. But we all we all have all of these things. And so I think any reminder, like you're saying, Tom, that um, just clarity and a willingness to be open to new approaches to things in the classroom really is going to help all students, I think. And we don't need to approach it in a diagnostic manner. I yeah. think no, no, you, no. you spoke to this, Charlie, I think actually in talking about your own, your journeyman teaching style and how it's changed. And you were saying that over the years, you've become more sensitive to acknowledging the individual differences between your students and their needs. And whether someone is on the spectrum or not, I think we can all be sensitive to that. Mm-hmm. You know, think talking about students. So, I mean, we've all been students and you mentioned that it was being a student that led to your path of being a teacher. Was there something you experienced as a student that you really feel like has informed your teaching going forward? either in that class or even back in... Yeah. Um, in that particular ca- class, there was a uh, uh, historian, John McCartney, who was from Lafayette, since, since passed away, and Doug Heath. Oh, Doug. Yeah, and Carmen Candel, who taught Spanish. Uh-huh. And the interaction between them was so interesting because um, Carmen was raised in Panama, and the she had a very anti-colonial atmosphere to her. Mm-hmm. John was raised in the Bahamas hmm. and had a very strong sense that the colonial school system and stuff there was beneficial to the <laughs> island and how it went. And just to hear two people from different areas comment on the same thing was just, I mean, you know, half the class was just sitting there listening to them. Yeah. And it was just such a fascinating uh, part of that. Yeah. And then they brought the literature from that er- from that uh, area in with it. Uh-huh. And so that just made it so much more enriching. And so... Yeah, you know, I think I saw that the big thing was here was people talking about things that they were passionate about. Yeah, yeah. I love the idea of a team taught class. And, you know, we don't have as many opportunities for it here as as we'd like. But I wonder if there's ways that we can craft the opportunity to create this, you know, whether it's bringing in outside speakers who offer a different perspective than our own. I think what we're missing is it's I think it's difficult in a lot of ways again, back to the administrative side, including financially, to start to have two or three teachers teaching a small group of students for an entire semester. Mm-hmm. But um, like I was talking to some people in sociology the other day, and they said, you know, would you want to come in and mm-hmm. talk a little bit about evolution and evolutionary psychology? And I'd say, well, sure, I'd be glad to do that for, for one session, mm-hmm. you know, without pay, just to do it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think we could probably tap into that to have people with different expertises just show up at a you know, classroom and, and talk about what they're what their passion is for. Yeah. I, I, um, I think I, it was Erin Riley who was, who was a sociology professor here at NCC. And as she had mentioned that she had asked you to come to her class to talk about evolution. And she had actually mentioned to me, Hey, would you want to come to the class and talk about the psychology of prejudice and discrimination? It was for her American ethnicity class. Mm-hmm. And so I said, kind of like you, I'm like, yeah, sure. That, that actually sounds like it would be fun. You know, you're talking to a different group of students who have a different context. And so, so 
And it was really helpful for me because the lecture I put together for that class, I mean, the discussion I put together for that class, I then took back to my health psychology class um, because it made me think about the material in a different way. Right. So I, th- I think that was um, I think that was fun, and I would love to do that again. And now I'm going to invite you and Aaron to come to my class. <laughs> literally my health like writing class. a list for my women and gender studies class from the fall. Yeah. I'm like, what other disciplines can yeah. I invite into the classroom to enrich that conversation? And and this actually uh, reminds me and brings me to so oftentimes we ask what we have asked our our um, our visitors to our podcast to to talk about an assignment that you've done in your class and you sent something that it, I is very close to my heart um, where you talked about you do a lab talking about skin color and the evolution of skin color. And uh, why is that? Can you say maybe a little bit more about that and then why you find that assignment to be a compelling assignment for your students? Well, it's we do a lab um, that looks at aspects of vertebrate anatomy. And one of the things we look at is skin. Mm-hmm. And so we look at all different kinds of animal skin and we look at human skin. And I ask them, you know, what's different? Well, human skin doesn't have a lot of hair on it, you know, all this kind of stuff. And we talk a little bit about pheromones and those type things. <laughs> and then I say, well, what else is different about skin? And they, they're hesitant. Yeah. And I say, well, color, look around this room. Yeah. The skin is different. And they'll get a little bit quiet. And I'll say, well, you know, why? Why is it different? Why do we have different races? What What is different about that? And then I'll go in to explain that the two things the skin does is, first of all, it protects us from ultraviolet radiation, which is damaging the DNA by producing melanin, which blocks the ultraviolet light. But it also produces vitamin D when ultraviolet rays strike cholesterol derivative molecules. So you need those two things. You need protection from UV light and you need some UV to, to make vitamin D. Well, if you think about the earth as a ball, the closer you are to the equator, the closer that ball is to the sun. And so the higher the ultraviolet rays. I was in the Galapagos and the ultraviolet radiation there is just incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you can, you can get second degree burns in an hour in the sun. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, if you are somebody who's from that area, your skin has to be dark to block off the ultraviolet because some of it's going to get through to make the vitamin D. But, and this is the part they also kind of cringe at, I say, (laughs) since we all originated in Africa Uh and we all started with dark skin, as the people moved closer to the poles where the ultraviolet radiation was less, the skin had to lighten to allow more ultraviolet light in to increase the amount of vitamin D. Uh And so therefore, there is no such thing as race as far as biology is concerned. We're just talking about organisms who have adapted to their environment. Uh-huh. And so if you look at the DNA, it's identical. I yeah. mean, it's essentially identical. Yeah. So we're looking at a, at a physical characteristic where animals adapt to their environment that gives us what we call race. Yeah. And so what I tell them is, as far as inclusion and that's concerned in the biology, we don't worry about that. Because we're all one species, so we don't have to. We don't have to think about that. <laughs> it's when you get into sociology and psychology and those classes that you're going to talk about race, because they, that's where race developed. Yeah, yeah. I love that assignment for that reason, because I think we as human beings love our taxonomies, regardless mm-hmm. of the culture we come from, mm-hmm. and we like to form groups, and we've done so culturally and sociologically based on gender, on race, religion, and that assignment really gets it helps break down the taxonomy you can't think of race the same way at least biologically that way and so i'm you know you talked about um, students who cringe momentarily when you're having it have have you had students have any reaction to that assignment that that surprised you or that you saw something kind of change i can see them some of them get uncomfortable Hmm. yeah and 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 i never push evolution in my classroom what i tell the students is 
I'm going to start simple and work more complex. Mm -hmm. You got to let me do that because that's the only way I know how to do this. And so if that's uncomfortable for you, you just got to take it in that frame. Mm -hmm. But when I start really talking about human evolution and all the facts that show that humans evolved in in East Africa, Mm -hmm. I have some students that I can see are getting a little bit tense about that. What do you think is making them tense? Do you think it's the evolution part or is it the we're all the races or is it both? I think both. You think yeah. both. You know, I think a lot of them are, are, you know, under the still, still very, um, tightly bound to the notion that, um, Adam and Eve were two white folks and that's where everything starts. <laughs> yeah. Anything that you get away from that makes them feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do talk about evolution in psychology too. And I have occasionally felt that same kind of uncomfortable you know, reaction to especially the very, um, I guess, fundamentally fundamentalist religion or very conservative religious students. Um, I think it's I think it's so cool to get at a topic like race from the science perspective. Then also, like you say, from the sociology perspective, from the psychology perspective, um, because it we we were excited to have someone who was a, a STEM professor because we've only talked to, um, you know, the liberal arts uh, professor so far. But do you feel that teaching something that is more, well, I mean, I think we've already seen that it it it's not cut and dried necessarily. I guess the, I don't know if I have a question. I guess I'm just really thinking about the fact that when you're teaching scientific facts, you still might have people who question those facts. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and th- so there is not really, I mean, is there another step that you can do other than trying to start simple with vivid illustrations and then get more complex or what, what else can you do to get people to sort of embrace the facts as you're teaching them? Well, as far as the human evolution was concerned, I, I really like a um, a series that PBS did called Your Inner Fish. Oh, yeah. With Neil Shubin. Uh-huh. And I, I just think it's remarkable. And I show at least two of those episodes. Yeah. And in the last episode when he's talking about your inner monkey and how that works, uh-huh. he talks about the fact that, you know, if you would take an engineer in a room and have them take a support that was horizontal... And then try to use that same support to support something that's vertical. Mm -hmm. It's not going to work. And so when you start curving the human spine in order to keep it in alignment, Uh you get an S-shaped curve, which is a terrible way to bear weight in a vertical (laughs) direction. And so you start to get 80% of Americans have back problems. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And so, so, you know, I don't say anything about evolution. I just say that fact. Right. But... You know, the reality is you're taking something that things were suspended from and now having it support the entire weight when you move from a tetrapod to a bipedal animal. Oh, and yeah. And so the, 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 it's, it's terrible engineering. It's just, <laughs> and so, you know, and I leave it at that. Right. You know, right. and so. But that's enough to disrupt, I think, you know, whereas I think your previous assignment disrupts some of our notions about race mm-hmm. um, and even mm-hmm. our practices of othering people of, of, from different races. Mm-hmm. That almost disrupts an understanding of what, how we often think of ourselves as human beings, mm-hmm. as if we popped into existence have always been this way and are built as, you know, perfect creatures, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, the top mm-hmm. of the food chain, you know, right. when, you know, we have been affected by our evolution and not always in ways that make perfect sense for the way we conduct our lives. Yeah. And that same video um, shows uh, a, a gene that they found, a Hox gene that creates front limbs. Mm-hmm. And if they put that Hox gene in a uh, 
in a in a state a stingray. If they put it in a chicken, if they put it in a mouse, it grows front limbs. No and so they even show one little boy who they think had an excess of this gene being turned on, and he's got six fingers on each hand. Oh wow! And so we see these combinations. But again, I don't drive that down their throats. I just say, yeah. so this is the same in all of these. Yeah. And hopefully they start to make the connection. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. yeah. it becomes pretty hard to refute. Yeah. <laughs> and Absolutely. to ask you questions. I can't imagine confronting that as a student and not wanting to learn more, not wanting right. to ask more questions about it. Right. Right. I mean, and, and talk about um, not only talking about something with passion and that's vivid and that they can picture, you know, kind of like Temple Grandin was saying, um, but also... It, it relates to things they know, you know, it completely relates to their own experiences of like, oh yeah, my mom has back pain or, um, yeah, my, my dad has back pain. All, all of those, I have back pain. <laughs> so I can relate. <laughs> you know, we've been talking a little bit about disruption and discomfort in the classroom based on some of these discussions where you like, you put facts out there, but students' reactions to them might discomfort them it's, it's a, to, to some to some degree. You know, when that happens, you know, do you see value in those moments of discomfort? Do you address it and talk about it? You know? Yeah. Um, uh, um, um, I was part of an inclusion institute this year from the University of Southern California. Mm-hmm. And I think... Part of what I learned there was that we've got to stop being afraid of uncomfortable situations in some aspects. And so, just to give you an example, I was I was talking about sickle cell anemia in my human biology class, mm-hmm. and I had a young African American woman in the class who was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, wait, it'd be interesting to see: are they really testing for that? You know, how much do they talk to people? And then I thought, well, is that is that isolating her? Is that selecting mm-hmm. her out of the classroom? And I thought. No, no, this is a teaching experience. I can't let go. Mm-hmm. And so I, I asked her, I said, you know, are they, are they screening for things like sickle cell and have they talked to you about that and all this kind of stuff? And afterwards she walked by and I said, that make you uncomfortable. She said, no, no, yeah. It make me uncomfortable. yeah. But you know, those are the kind of things I think that sometimes an uncomfortable moment is what you kind of need in a classroom. You know, yeah. I don't mean you want to bring in a lot of tension, but that little bit of uncomfortableness is, is the only way out is through. Yeah. <laughs> And I like what you said about checking in with her at the end, right? Because you can ask the question in class and, uh, and, but then just making sure that you're open with the student, like, Hey, I didn't make you uncomfortable. And then being open to if she said, Oh yeah, actually it did. Right. That you can continue the, that. Yeah. yeah. Continue the conversation. I want to put you on the spot a little bit, Charlie, and ask you a potentially difficult question. Hopefully this is the good type of discomfort that, that, um, that maybe produces, um, something constructive, um, in terms of the, larger conversation around teaching and higher education. If you could change one thing about your profession or about higher ed in general, what would it be? I am strongly opposed to the amount of distance courses that first and second year Mm. traditional age students take. Mm. Um, What we found across the board is that students do better if they have direct communications with somebody at the college. I just go through an inclusion institute that says, you know, we should get more and more opportunities to put students of different color and backgrounds and stuff together. Mm. And how do you do that on a distance format? Mm -hmm. I don't care if you're Skyping or not. It's not the same as sitting in a classroom. I can be a student that's got uh, African-American and Hispanic students in my class, you know, in a distance class. And that's different than having one of them sit on either side of me in a classroom. Mm -hmm. And so... The other thing I just heard on NPR the other day that just floored me was 
a researcher has done a whole uh, big, huge study on touch. Hmm. And what she is saying is that we're becoming such a touchless society. Mm -hmm. You you can't touch the little kids in school. You Mm -hmm. can't touch all this kind of stuff. And they did uh, studies in how kids react at places like McDonald's and groups in this country compared to like France. And in France, there's a lot more touching stuff Hmm. going on in the classrooms. And when the kids get into these places like McDonald's, they're a lot more easygoing. In this in the area, what they observed was the only touching the students here did was when they were pushing each other or mm. doing things like that. Mm. And she is absolutely convinced that our students are our children are not getting enough direct interaction with each other and they're not getting touched enough. Mm. And she thinks that's one of the reasons we're having so many school shootings. Wow. She said these people are just so disconnected from each sterilized. other. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know? And, and, and I think I, and I think that's true. And it just, I just feel that we are pushing distance education as a thing in this country that is, you know, the, the, the answer to our secondary education. And I think it's a mistake. Hmm. I think there's nothing better than interacting with a seasoned instructor in a classroom one-on-one and interacting with the other people that's in your classes. Mm-hmm. And when we have freshman students sitting in our dorms taking distance classes here, yeah, that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. It just doesn't make sense. Oh, now, yeah. if you're going to be a graduate student or if you're a mom at home with kids mm-hmm. or if you're overseas as a veteran, yep, then I think that's a great way of doing distance education. But for the standard student to, to even have the responsibility of getting up getting dressed and getting to school Mm -hmm. is a meaningful exercise. Mm -hmm. And so at some point in their lives, most of them are going to have a job where they're going to have to do that. So let's get used to doing it. And and another thing is it is so much easier to be outspoken and maybe even say some things that are confrontational when you're doing it in a distance format than if you're sitting next to somebody. And so I just think it's, it's a huge travesty. I just, I've never been in favor of it and, you know, I'm an old, I'm an old man, and I'm, you know, I'm gonna go to my grave with that. Idea. It's just something that rubs me raw. Well, I think you make an excellent point, though, because I, as someone who teaches online regularly and and who enjoys teaching online, I always say that it's good for some students and not for other students. And your point, especially about um, students who are physically here, living in the residence halls, who who then in their first semester are taking an online class. It does seem like maybe that's something that they could be strongly advised against um, by their by their advisors when they're registering for classes. Because I think, yeah, those are excellent points. Yeah, you really addressed what I, I started to speak, and then you were like, except for veterans, except for these people, I, you know, I. I want to complicate some of what you're, you know, not challenged, but complicated in some ways only because online is, is changing. It's changing here at NCC. Uh, I'll admit I'm actually in the online training module right now, which is undergoing a huge revamp. And it's a credit to those people how actually challenging that class is and how much it's challenging me to rethink. Cause I've always been, I come out, you know, I teach. English film and gender studies, I believe in circling up the desks and having rich conversations that I've always said, how can I do this online? And I am at least in this experience seeing ways that I can have meaningful conversations. And as I've gotten to know, as we know, the majority of our students here at a community college work. And about half of those are working full time while, while doing their coursework. Many of them, ha- you know, have marriages, kids, and jobs with complicated hours. And so I think online offers potentially 
a more efficient route to graduation in, in a timely manner. And so it's really important, I think, for those students. I think we just need to be conscious of how we're always making that a better, more enriching experience for those students to get away from, as you said, the anonymity, if you will, of the trolls, people who feel like they can say anything um, because they're not looking at the person, you know, across a room space. Well, I so, understand that, that argument. By the same token, again, a few years ago, we did a, a study where they asked traditional age students, why do you work? And the girls work to buy clothes and the guys work to keep their cars up. Mm. I mean, they're not working. The traditional age students, a lot of them are not working to pay their tuition. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, again, where's, why aren't we focusing the fact that their education is so important? They should figure out ways to work around their education mm -hmm. rather than having their education work around their work schedules. Yeah. And so yeah, again, I think that I'm talking about the, Traditional mm -hmm. age, first and second year students. Right. Of a certain social class, though. Sure. And I think that that's really important because for our lower income students, I don't think working is a choice. And well, I don't yeah. necessarily, I don't think they're necessarily working towards clothes. Yeah, but I, mean, I agree with you, you know, for those person who it, it is a privilege, you know, where their, their economic means is a privilege and they have that as our opportunity, we should be encouraging them to do so if they don't need to work. Yeah, and, and I think clarifying what online learning is is p another part of that conversation, exactly. both for faculty yeah. and for students. So I think that's an excellent an excellent point. I share all your fears, and, and it, yeah. it, it scares the bejesus out of me. You know, like, you know, I share all, all of your fears about online. I also am hopeful, mm -hmm. you know, that that we might find means of improving it and helping make some of those connections, um, even means of, of touch, if you will. It may not be physical, but, you know, uh, means of doing that, whether it's connections. videos. Yeah, connections. exactly. Finding, yeah. finding new means of connection yeah. and engagement, uh, you know, and so I'm well, hopeful. Well, we're going to take a – we have to – wrap up soon sadly but we're gonna take a, a little bit of a left turn from hard, very hard left yeah yeah we'll hard be Beyonce left. and go to the left to the left <laughs> thanks <Tom. laughs> thanks for lightening that up bringing the music to it um so we like to ask if you would be willing to share a we started calling it a guilty pleasure and then I argued that there's no guilt if it's pleasurable <laughs> then there should be no guilt but a guilty pleasure that maybe we don't know about you those of us at NCC who know you oh my gosh I've got tons of uh, I figured. I figured you are a Renaissance man. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm going to say that um, I have a love of craft beers. Oh. Mm -hmm. And so I go to beer festivals and I have friends that do beer tastings and okay. uh, dabbled a little bit in making beer. Of course. Of course, Charlie has dabbled in making beer. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I, I see it as... as as a lot of people see wines. And okay. I think there's so much difference. In, and I love the industry and the fact that it's blossoming in the Lehigh Valley. And so, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. There's a great place uh, in New Hope um, that we went to a couple weekends ago, actually. And I'm not going to remember. I'll let you know what it was. But they did tastings. They did flights of beer. And it was really good. And it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, if that's a guilty pleasure, I am guilty. I charged. <laughs> Charlie, thank you so much for being My here. It's been a fabulous conversation. I've so appreciated the opportunity to get to know you better. Um, and like it's... Everything you've done for NCC over the last 25 years, I think you've been here, is you've helped make this place um, an extraordinary place to work and, and been doing incredibly good here. So thank you. Pedagogy a go go. Pedagogy go go go. Hey, welcome back, everyone. I guess, why am I saying welcome back? You've been here all along. <laughs> 
But it's been a few minutes for me as we've had a chance to really uh, to chat about what an amazing opportunity it was to sit down with Charlie. Um, you know, I want to. We began this episode by talking about Gina falling on her ass uh, and and uh, her coccyx, and um, it's you know, as my understanding as a non scientific person, it's, it's a bone in the body that was once part of a, a a tail that we don't really have any use of, except for the fact that when we fall on it, it causes incredible pain and discomfort. Um, none of which our conversation with Charlie was today. It was actually <laughs> a rich and wonderful uh, conversation. But it really was about, I think, um, you know, him speaking, he began by talking in one of our first questions about how he has evolved in his teaching style, which really spoke to me in terms of as our student body has grown increasingly diverse, you know, Charlie has felt a real need to be sensitive to the individual differences and needs of our students. And I think spoke really eloquently about how that has changed the way he operates and is effective in the classroom. And that speaks so much to so much of what we talk about on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciated kind of his POV as a scientist. You know, both of you, you know, you and I, we come out of the humanities in terms of our disciplines. And to have someone, you know, humanizing social sciences. Yes. Sorry. No, 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 no. no. That's okay. I was going to correct you later. I was going to correct you later. So I thought, let me me correct it now. I come from the humanities. Gene is from the social sciences. But but Charlie is is firmly rooted within a a STEM background. He's a scientist, uh, you know, and it's about teaching towards this idea of objective truth and facts, which is something that sometimes we're wary of in our own disciplines as we talk about uh, the culturally constructed nature of things like race and, you know, having the opportunity for him to talk about the way he reframes race in his science classes through assignments in terms of skin color is so vastly different than the way we're used to talking about it. And for me, it, it made me be really thoughtful about how I'll address it in the future, you know, and he connected that in, in interesting ways to his earlier experiences having these team taught class, you know, where he had teachers from multiple mm-hmm. disciplines and very different perspectives on a given topic. Mm-hmm. And what a wonderful experience that was. And, you know, going forward, I know both of you and I got excited and say, hey. What other voices can we bring into our classrooms to to enrich the dialogues that were ha- uh, that 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 are happening? Yeah, I I want to touch actually just briefly on um, on the way in which Charlie framed the um, biological basis of skin color because I think it also ties into something we talked about last week too, which is this interpretation. You know, there is there there are terms there there are you know, in this case, we're talking about sort of the the way cellular processes work, right? right. So we are talking about scientific facts. Um, but last week, you know, Freud came up in the reading that we discussed and, <laughs> and that there are going to be layers of interpretation, yours from a critical perspective, mine from a psychological perspective. For Charlie, from a biological perspective versus me from a psychological perspective versus a sociologist, right? Versus, et cetera, et cetera. So again, these these different facets of understanding of facts. I mean, we live in this this age right now of you know, in air quotes, and I I I'm sure everyone hates the term. I alter- was waiting for it to come up in the podcast. Yeah. I was surprised it didn't. So the term alternative facts, right? And in the term is fake news, but um, it it really does. That's funny. I thought you were going to actually say political correctness, oh. which is kind of a, it journeys alongside a lot of when people start talking. I mean, it's become a loaded term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is it's it which is another 
flavor of what we were talking about today. Um, that's that's kind of not really based on interpretation of facts. It's all political correctness almost turns into let's. There are things we don't talk about, right? Right. And so I, again, I think that that's another level at which people are guarded and people are afraid of having these conversations. Um, and, you know, kind of back to what we were saying earlier about how vulnerability really opens us up to be able to talk about things in a more, in a, in a more profound way, in a more meaningful way. Well, and if um, nothing else, we, you know, one of the main themes I thought that came out of it is that we cannot and should not be afraid of those conversations, right, of delving right. into those areas and allow those conversations to happen. And not to be afraid to mess up and look silly, right? To ask the question, as long as we are also willing to continue to engage in the difficulty. If we say something and it is upsetting or confusing to someone else to be willing to stay in that conversation and go, hey, so what makes this confusing? I don't have the same perspective as you. Can you give me your perspective? Which happened, I think, to some degree during our conversation of, of distance learning and online education today. Absolutely. Um, because and it's funny, actually, because everything that Charlie had to say resonated with me. That, mm -hmm. that is been kind of my long-standing view of online education and I've had to challenge that you know um, and see its benefit for so many of our students and so mm -hmm. it was really nice to actually say you know I hear exactly what you're saying I, I feel very much the same way mm -hmm. to some degree but I also see amazing new technologies mm -hmm. improving it the uh, improving and the most important thing I, I want to really give props to um, our, our, our distance learning division because their new training resources and modules are, are building better instructors. And I, you know, I'm, I mentioned I was in the class now mm -hmm. and it, it's forced me to shift my paradigm in mm -hmm. terms of the things to say, wow, I'm actually not trying to translate what I'm doing on ground into an online environment. I need to think it, of it as an entirely different space. Mm -hmm. The only mm -hmm. thing that's shared is the learning objective. Exactly. In, in, I mean, it kind of comes back to what Temple Grand, what Charlie quoted Temple Grandin is saying is that online teaching is different than on ground teaching not less necessarily, oh, right? Done. Nice connection, <laughs> but, Gina. But it really is true. As someone who does both and, and enjoys both a lot, um, I, there are some things that I think online learning allows for that I don't get in my in-person classes, especially if I have 36 people in a class for an hour and 15 minutes, right? I'm not getting a, um, this weekly interaction of, 500 words written by a student on a topic relating to their lives for these classes because I'm not teaching an English class, right? I'm teaching a psychology class. So um, on the other hand, I know that I personally have had students that had no business being in an online class right. in their, you know, whether it be their first semester or even their fifth semester, online learning isn't necessarily for every person. And I think that that's, I think that's where we're going just mm -hmm. as we're asking that certain core competencies be developed for the instructors teaching the class. Mm -hmm. The future probably means that we're going to have to build something like that and for students that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. asks them, are they really ready? And if they're not, says, hey, can we provide you some supports to get right. you ready if this is really what you want to do? And we do that to a certain level because I always just direct my 
online students to our website where there is actually a questionnaire that they can take that says, is online learning right for me? But there's it, there's no gateway. You know, right. it, it's really a self-assessment for the students. And we do have a lot of resources. But again, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, <laughs> so, so to speak. So not that our students are horses. But horses are beautiful animals. So I don't feel bad about comparing our students to horses. <laughs> Is what I'm saying. <laughs> nice save, Gina. Excellent save. Thank you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sweating here, I have to be honest, because as I mentioned, it, it's the end of the semester and why I elected to take this online training course at the very same time that I'm grading papers and doing everything else, I don't know. So I'm already overworked, but you always assign me amazing extra credit. And so I, I want to know, what have you got for me? I'm ready. I'm going to get my grades in like tomorrow <laughs> afternoon. What's next for me? Well, this, is, this shouldn't be too difficult. And this was something that I had in mind when we knew we were going to be talking to Charlie, particularly about the visit with Dr. Grandin. Um, and the ways in which she is um, such an advocate for different ways of seeing the world, right? She talks about herself, I think in pictures, right? That is how I think. It needs to be visual, needs to be concrete. And I've been thinking about that a lot since I saw her speak. And, um, and I was also thinking about, you know, my extra credit for this week, student stories. And I've been kind of thinking about the ways in which students think differently, or when I'm caught realizing that the way I've explained something is not landing for a student. And so we need to find that common ground where we're, we're thinking on a similar plane. And so that's my extra credit assignment for you, should you choose to accept it, is to think about maybe even compare yourself to people in your life and ways in, maybe find a moment where you're realizing, hey, I'm thinking about this in one way. This person is thinking about it in a different way. And not even necessarily like from the perspective of psychology versus, you know, biology, but but really from the perspective of, oh, I have a visual image of this, but this person is clearly working from a dictionary definition of this, right? Does that make sense? It makes perfect. Okay. Dear audience member, you can't see me, but I'm like, I love this idea. My my whole face, I'm doing my, my best Kelly Allen impression where he goes, love it. You know, and I was just listening to what you say because all I'm thinking is, is uh, my wife Becca will love this. This isn't going to just make me a better teacher, but a better person. Oh. You're asking me to move outside of my own mindset. Excellent. You know, she'll be a better communicator in my marriage. She'll too. have to buy me a drink. <laughs> she, she would happily do that. <laughs> so that that is exciting, and I I am I am up to the task. Awesome. I'm really okay. I'm looking forward to it. I and I don't think it's going to be an easy one. I think by design, you you know that's the kind of thing that would get me excited. But I also think that it's purposefully difficult. It's hard to move out of. The framing, the you know, the the typical frame for the way we think, right? Because it's it's that expression: a fish doesn't know it's in water, right? Exactly. We're so used to our own brains, right? And that this reminds me of the writer Anne Lamott. One of my favorite quotes by her is, um, "You shouldn't go alone into your own mind. It's a bad neighbor. It can be a bad neighborhood." And that's a really bad paraphrase of it. <laughs> but we're so used to our own brains and our own neighborhoods that um, it it. Can, it can be wild to realize not everyone's brain is the same layout, right? Well, I, I was just thinking, I was flipping through my notes to find, because I wrote it in my notes because uh, Charlie was talking about that series, Your Inner Fish. Yes. So I, this will be my inner fish yes. that is going to learn the, that it's in water. Yes, exactly, <laughs> <That's> exactly. <so. laughs> I love it. I can't wait. Okay, great. 
Hey, thanks for listening to Pedagogy A Go-Go, recorded in the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology at Northampton Community College in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Our podcast daydreamer slash showrunner is Kelly Allen, and Pedagogy A Go-Go is produced by Jeff Armstrong. If you've got any questions, please send them to pedagogyagogo at gmail.com. Our social media handle is at pedagogyagogo, and you can stop by our website at www.pedagogyagogo.com for copies of podcast transcripts, guest assignments, and other useful tidbits. Keep in mind there are no hyphens or dots in any of the above web addresses. Until next time, this is Gina and Tom saying, take care and teach well. Thank you.